Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's a one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, and they talk about a recent meeting at the White House between the president and a number of contemporary historians. Those historians attempted to analyze the situation the country finds itself in, whether our republic is in danger or democracy might collapse. So Lindsay and I wondered what we might have said had we been invited to that meeting. And you came up with a number of things that you would have talked to the current president about. We had the advantage of not being there. I'm not sure either one of us would have said quite those words had we been in the meeting with President Biden. But I think it's important that historians state truth to power as they understand it. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now, and good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I've read enough of your writings to know that you gave great importance to historical events in the past. You used them to help you with your own views and your writing. Recently, there was a meeting at the White House with our current president where he invited a number of contemporary historians in to sort of uh, give him the temperature of the American public and talk about issues facing America today. Was there any time during your presidency where you referred to historians or past history? I often brought scientists and men of letters to my White House dinners, uh, which were usually in mid to late afternoon. But there weren't very many historians around in the United States at the time. And of course, those in Europe were more than 3,000 miles away. If I had lived in your time, I would have brought in experts on a range of subjects to advise me. Nobody refuses to accept an invitation from the President of the United States. And imagine what you could learn from geographers, map makers, linguists, ethnologists, uh, historians, um, people who had devoted their lives to philosophy, people who understood constitutional systems much better than Colonel Hamilton or, or I or even James Madison. The President has a unique capacity to gather around him the smartest people in the world. Unfortunately, the infrastructure in my time, our roads were pitiful. There wasn't a paved road in Virginia at the time of my death in 1826. There were no other means of, of, of beaming in people's views from some distant geography. So I didn't have that advantage, but I promise you I would have taken advantage of it if it had been possible. Well, let me ask the question in a different way, sir. Were there historians during your time whose works you read or admired or or thought they were uh, good advice for you? Yes. Uh, Mercy Otis Warren was writing accounts of the American Revolution. You know, the Comte de Buffon in France, uh, in his massive multi-volume study of of biology, wrote about the the capacity of the New World uh, in its fertility and and so on. Uh, So they weren't all historians, but such historians as existed I tended to consult by way of letter. I didn't ask them about the prospects for the United States. I understood that perfectly well. 
but we can learn an enormous amount by looking back to the world of the Roman Republic or the uh, the the Low Countries in their own attempts to secure constitutions and due process. And so I read deeply and widely in the history of liberty. But if I had made a list of all of the historians in the United States in my time, it probably wouldn't have numbered five. Well, what about autobiographies, sir? Now, I know you started one, didn't really finish it. Were, were there uh, autobiographies during your time that were significant? Yes, a few, uh, but George Washington never wrote one, and John Adams didn't. I, I didn't. I started one. Adams started one, but both of us felt sheepish about being so egocentric, and so we let them drop uh, just when they might have gotten pretty interesting for later historians. So the the genre from which we learned about people's lives in my time was their letters. I understand people don't really write letters in your time, um, which is a, a, a terrible problem, not only for historians, but in letters we have the opportunity to sort out our policies and our views of history. I'm sorry, sir, that you and Mr. Adams in particular did not finish your autobiographies. You said you felt a bit sheepish about it. Yes, I felt that I was paying too much attention to the the small facts of a life that was admittedly of some historical importance, but not as important as all of that. And I did say late in my life that it was my letters, which I carefully preserved in order. It was my letters that would serve future biographers as they attempted to make sense of my life and my achievements. A fair point, sir, and they have. And I thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, citizen. citizens, and welcome to this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, this week a special one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky. I was away and the two of you talked, and you picked a subject which I found pretty interesting, and that was based around the current president's request for contemporary historians to come in and meet with him. That's kind of unusual, isn't it? It is a little bit. Some presidents do it and others don't. I'm told that President Trump, for example, never invited a historian of any sort to come talk with him during his four years as president. But Barack Obama did some of this and Bill Clinton even more. And Joe Biden, I think facing a a national crisis that none of his predecessors faced, which is the future and survival of the American constitutional system, has been consulting John Meacham, the distinguished historian who is also a Jefferson biographer, and others, including Doris Kearns Goodwin, throughout his first two years as president. But in this case, he called in a number of historians together to the White House as a kind of a seminar on how things stand uh, in 2022 and whether we are likely to survive this strange crisis we find ourselves in. Well, you had some things to say both to our current president and some things to say about our previous president. Uh, Shall we go to the conversation now, sir? 
we should, David, but just this this brief disclaimer. You know, Lindsay and I decided we would take this very seriously. In other words, what if we had been called to the White House to to state our views? And I think that the crisis that we're in is so acute that this is a time for people to speak with real candor. And so some of our viewers may disagree with what we say, but it, but it's not what we say that's so important. It's it's the idea of of all of us trying to process this moment in American history. So with that preface, let's let's listen to part of the conversation. Very good, sir. Hello, everyone. I'm Clay Jenkinson, and welcome to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Listening to America. Today, a conversation with our good friend, Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, an American historian. Lindsay, as you know, President Biden recently invited a number of prominent historians to come to the White House, um, including Michael Beschloss, but others, to try to give him historical grounding about this sort of situation that we're in. You know, how grave is this? How did this happen? How does it measure up against other critical moments in American history? You know, how might this resolve itself and so on? We weren't there, but I thought we could really have an interesting conversation today as if we sort of imagined that we were there. And so I'm going to, we'll go back and forth, but I'm going to sort of ask you what I think would have been said. Dr. Chervinsky, you're an expert in American history, particularly the early national period. Give us some historical grounding. How, how can historians help us understand this moment in American history? How would you start? Keeping in mind, you're only going to get a few minutes with the president of the United <laughs> States. This may be your only chance to talk to a president. Yeah, if that. Um, well, first, I should say I was delighted to see that this meeting happened because and it's the second one, actually, that President Biden has convened with a group of historians. And um, there are several on the list that if I were making my own group of historians as advisors, I would have selected myself. And in particular, I was thrilled to see that he invited Ann Applebaum because I think she's unbelievably brilliant, especially when it comes to matters of authoritarianism and the decline of democracy. If I were to have the opportunity to have one of these meetings, which would just be a little bit mind-blowing, but if I were, I think that I would say a couple of things. And I think, obviously, you know, you and I have more time to discuss this than we would if we were with the president, but they kind of fall under a few different buckets. The first is the importance of trust in institutions. The second is democracy on a global stage. And the third is civic education and understanding of our democratic process. So and let I me stop you there. Three... So three of those, I want to dig in and really get your views on each of these. I'm going to echo what you said about that. And Applebaum. So if you're if you're wanting to put this on a global scale to really think about what's happening in the world that the United States is maybe first among equals in, but we're by no means alone. She's certainly a person to invite. She knows a great deal about Polish authoritarianism, uh, lived in Poland, has written several books on the subject of authoritarianism. And her argument, I think, is that in times of doubt and fear, people are drawn to authoritarian measures. So is that why you want her in this conversation? It is. And I think, you know, one of the things that's so valuable about history is 
it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And while there is much that is unique about the United States and the American way of life, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so studying the rise of authoritarianism in Eastern Europe or in some of the other places around the world is very useful because you can see what were the conditions that fostered this growing distrust? What were the conditions that exacerbated violence? How did countries come out of that? What were the things that ameliorated those tensions? And so those lessons are incredibly helpful and are some of the things that historians can provide. And in this case, she is one of the leading authorities on these trends abroad and therefore would be, I think, a really useful advisor. Indeed. Uh, however, it's maybe comforting to know that we're not alone, that this is happening in Hungary and in a certain sense it happened during Brexit and with what's been going on in Britain and the, the anxieties about the future of the EU and so on. On the other hand, uh, it doesn't really make us any happier to know that there's a worldwide phenomenon that we have succumbed to too. And when you look at the history of these authoritarian movements, take the obvious, uh, Adolf Hitler in Germany in the 1930s, Mussolini in Italy in the 1920s and 30s. I was trying to get ready for this conversation by thinking, how did demagogues go away? And they're often assassinated at some point. Huey Long, Mussolini, Hitler commits suicide just as the Russians are approaching the bunker. It doesn't usually go well for authoritarians at the end. Uh, it took war to undo authoritarian regimes in Japan and in Germany and in Italy and in total war. So when you look at someone like Applebaum, who has a distinguished global, cross-Atlantic point of view, where's the, where's the hope? Where's, how does it end for her? Well, I think there are two things that should give us hope. The first is those examples absolutely are perhaps the most well-known and the most bloody in the way that they ended. But Mussolini was actually kind of thrown out of power before he was assassinated. And um, there is a book by Madeleine Albright called Fascism that explores other examples of authoritarianism and, in fact, looks at the ways in which they can be defeated. And there are actually a lot of legal means through which fascism and dictators can be brought back to size. And one of the best ways actually to prevent their reemergence is through legal means. So I think that's cause for hope. The second cause, which is something I think we're only really fully starting to appreciate now, is democracy requires other democracies. Or you can say, you know, republicanism, little r republicanism, requires other republics, whether they be constitutional or constitutional monarchies or what have you. So investing in our democracy is only going to strengthen democracies abroad and vice versa. The success of a democracy in a place like the rollback of a far-right candidate like Marie Le Pen in France is actually should be taken as an encouraging sign for us because they tend to feed each other. These things don't exist in a vacuum. So I think that that is a very encouraging sign and is one that we can continue to feed into and encourage and support. Fair enough. I certainly agree with you. And, and, and I used to think these two things were rock solid American truths. 
A, it can't happen here. And B, seeing that uh, Boris Johnson is re resigning in Britain, that the British people are certainly ambivalent about Brexit now. I felt there's been a calming down that that high water mark might have been 2016, Brexit plus Trump plus Hungary, et cetera. But what I don't see is the lowering of the temperature here. And so if this is, if I'm Biden and you've just said these things tend something, they kind of reach a high water mark and then through a series of means, they tend to uh, attenuate somewhat. I see it in Europe, but I don't see it yet here. In fact, just the opposite. It feels like we're digging in for more trouble here. What, what say you? I actually do see signs for hope here. Now they're temporarily obscured by the immediate visceral reaction by many members of the Republican Party to the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago. And there was indeed a, a backlash to that, which I felt was wildly inappropriate and not the type of behavior democracies are supposed to embrace. However, I think that there, there has been a reckoning that maybe that things did get too far, that things were scary, that January 6th was really, really terrible and could have been so much worse. And so I'd like to believe that there are some people stepping back from the brink. I think the January 6th hearings have done a remarkable job showing the extent of how bad things could have been and how lucky, frankly, we got that it wasn't so much worse. And that's forced some people to take pause. I also think a lot of the far right movements that we've seen in places like France or in Eastern Europe they actually kind of started before ours. So they might be a little bit ahead of us in that process. And I think actually one of the most compelling elements is the fact that when January 6th happened here, the rest of the world was like, what is going on? You know, and I've said this before and people have accused me of being, a, um, you know, an American exceptionalist thinking that everyone cares about the United States. I've talked to a lot of people abroad and they are paying very close attention. And that's not me saying that we're special. It's an understanding that what happens here does affect elsewhere. And I think that concern internationally for what our country endured from 2016-2020 should and did give a lot of people pause and say, well, maybe we need to take a step back from this. But maybe I'm also being Pollyannish because I really want to be an optimist about this. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a special one-on-one -on -one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Trevinsky. We'll return to this conversation in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a conversation about presidential historians between Clay Jenkinson and Lindsey Chervinsky. So, so far, if I'm President Biden and I'm a really good listener, I say, oh, Lindsey, Dr. Chervinsky, um, you've said this is a global phenomenon and uh, there's some evidence that it's diminishing, that it's reached its high water mark. And so there may be some less bad news or some good news on the horizon. And you said, you've urged me to, to play the long game, that this is not about the next six months. Maybe it's not even about the next two years. We're talking about a slow recovery of American norms. Thank you, Dr. Chervinsky. Mr. Jenkinson, uh, you're no Chervinsky, um, but what's your view? And here, I'd say two things right off the top. Number one, and I want to ask you this question, Lindsay. So I want, as I thought about this the other night, I thought, here's what I would want to say to President Biden. We've had some other really tough moments. Take the election of 1800, where both sides um, announced that they might invade Washington, D.C. with troops. Monroe from Virginia, Federalists from the North, uh, where the country waited for 36 ballots before the Federalists finally gave up and made Jefferson president, etc., that the vitriol of those times was um, every bit as, as, as vicious as ours, maybe in, in better English. Um, and if you take Joanne Freeman's work seriously, uh, in the run-up from, some say, the Burr, well, starting in 1798, Lyons and Griswold on the floor of Congress all the way up to the Civil War, there are duels and canings and beatings and spittings and uh, near duels a lot. So this isn't our first rodeo, and the country tends to lurch on, to stumble on, to the temperature does eventually come down, the norms do get reestablished. I want to tell him that. But I say this, Lindsay, I'm not certain it's true any longer. I mean, in other words, I want to believe that this is something that happens from time to time. Democracies may be um, susceptible to it, but we tend to get through them and then to reestablish something like civility. But I have real doubts about this, don't you? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think I didn't have doubts about it until January 6th. I thought that we would find a way to defeat the threat at the ballot box and then move forward. And there was even a minute after January 6th where I thought, okay, this was bad enough to shock the system and there will be a moment of reckoning People will come together. And that lasted about 36 hours. I don't know if we need another catastrophic moment. I, I'm not hoping for it by any stretch. We have lived through moments of incredible political violence. The 1960s were one where there were assassinations all the time of, of major public figures. So I'm certainly not hoping for any of that. And I hope no one thinks that that's what I am saying. I would like to believe that you and I are just too deep in the weeds to see how we get out. Historians are notoriously notoriously very terrible future predictors. We're really good with the past, not so good with what comes next. Um, but this is unprecedented. And even, you know, during the Civil War, even during the Great Depression, when there was actually a fairly significant threat of fascism, there was never an attempt to overthrow the electoral process. And the Civil War was really bad, but actually what was happening was the Southerners were just trying to leave. They accepted the outcome of the election 
and they didn't like it, which is, you know, bad for another reason. So, so yeah, it is unprecedented. It's, it's a whole new scenario. And I don't envy President Biden in for any reason, because it's just a really hard job under the best of circumstances, let alone under these ones. And we have to just acknowledge to put on the table, don't we, Lindsay, that this is the moment of tension in America that is dominated by the AR-15. In other words, we have an unprecedented weapon and that is increasingly used by the disaffected to go into the public square and to seek vengeance. So it's one thing for Griswold and Lyon to be taking tongs from the fireplace and canes and beating each other up with it. Not that that's ever okay or spitting at each other, but we're now living in the age of the AR-15. And I think that is a difference in, in not just in volume, but in kind. In other words, that this is an extremely vulnerable moment because we now have a mass killing machine owned by people that are your neighbors and mine. Yes. There's a historian named Kathleen Bellew who studies white supremacist militias. That's what her work is on. And she wrote a book called Bring the War Home. She recently said, I think it was on Twitter, that you know everyone was, was commenting about some of the reactions to the FBI search. And they were saying, you know, it seems like people are preparing for civil war. And she said, yes, and they have all the guns. I'm going to make my second proposition, then I want to go to, to um, institutional trust and civic education. But my second proposition would be, I'm sorry, Mr. Biden, you're not going to like what I'm about to say. And Lindsay here might not like it either. But you were the president of the United States. You are the president of the United States because of Donald Trump. You weren't going to be the president of the United States if it weren't for Donald Trump. You should not look on your victory as your victory as much as a national repudiation of Trump, that the country had seen too much. They were looking for some kind of a return to norms. You're a decent man and a good man, and many people like you because you're just a good and decent fellow, and you do have a reputation for working across the aisle and being genial and so on. That's why you're president. And what they wanted was a return to something like the norms. But the fact is, Mr. President, you're a little too old to inspire the country in the way that it needed to be inspired right now. No fault of yours, but it's simply true, sir. And you needed to be as centrist as possible so that people couldn't demonize you as a socialist and you know, controlled by the left and so on. I know you've had to struggle with the left, but but if you had been able, if you were, if you had more gas in the tank, and if you had, had been able to, to be a sort of Bill Clinton-esque centrist, just returning to norms, we're going to hold off on some of these bigger things. Let's just get the country back to something like a lower temperature and even keel. You might have been able to be a crossover figure. But now, sir, I would urge you in the strongest terms, and I have deep respect for you. I think you saved the country, frankly. But I would like you to announce that you're not running for a second term. And I would like us to find a young, vigorous person who can um, realize that the country is more conservative than the liberals think and more liberal than the conservatives think. And that's what's going to that's what's going to win something like a consensus. But we're never going to have a consensus if we continue to allow the country to be as polarized as it is. And you have, in some sense, lent yourself to 
uh, polarizing legislative policy, especially on questions of spending. Um, I don't expect you to respond, Mr. President, but you're asked for historians, and that's my view. So I agree with 80% of that, I think. I think Biden, one of the reasons that Democrats' prospects have increased in the last couple of months is that he's been pretty quiet. And he has been behind the scenes. He's been getting things done. But he has been doing it without anyone really noticing. He hasn't been out there a whole lot. That's great. The bills that they have passed have generally been incredibly popular, whether they're actually bipartisan in vote or just the measures themselves in terms of polling. So I think that's all really good. So you take Medicare something. relief on prescriptions and so on. These exactly. are highly popular things. Highly the Republicans popular. are against them for no rational reason. The American people like these things. And in the long run, they're going to be glad these things have been done, even if they don't give credit to the Biden administration for having done it. I think it's unfortunate that they weren't done in this way last summer. I think last summer when there was a lot of grappling over Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill, it damaged him in a way that he hasn't been able to recover from. Now, I don't totally blame him for that. And I think that there was some real bad faith negotiations on the part of people like Manchin and some of the more centrist people. Um, that being said, I do think Biden let the terms be dictated by the more progressive elements of the Democratic Party, which was a mistake because it did allow Republicans to target him as a socialist, which, to be fair, I think they would have done anyway. But the bill that they were talking about was much larger than what ended up happening. And I think more importantly, because it was so big, because the way Congress is completely broken and they had one shot to basically get everything passed, no one knew what was in it. So even if they, in theory, would have liked the elements, no one could describe what they were, even people who were paid to do so. So I think that that is the significant problem. The second piece, which is not his fault, and in, in, in fact, it drives me insane. So for four years, everyone said, we just want a president that we can trust. We just want someone who is not so unreliable. We just want someone who's not tweeting all day. We just want someone who we don't have to think about. We want to go 24 hours without having to think about the presidency. Now, this is not my life because I spend my life thinking about the presidency, but most Americans feel this way. Biden has done that. He's not on Twitter causing a, you know, a tweet storm. He's not attacking people. He's not assassinating Iranian generals. He's not doing all the kinds of things we said we didn't want to have happen. And yet so many Americans have said, where's the president? What is he doing? Why are we not hearing from him more? So in other words, the opportunism and the and the lack of good faith is just everywhere in this. But it's true that he loses either way. By, by, by being a stealth president in some respects, things have gotten done and, and he fulfilled our demand. At the same time, People are saying, we want a visible national leader here, and we're not seeing that person. And when he is speaking, he doesn't sing the song of America the way Ronald Reagan could or JFK could or Bill Clinton could. Well, and he doesn't inspire the same sort of fervor that people like Obama did, which I think in a lot of ways is actually what made him so appealing in 2016 because he was so calm, because he wasn't this 
you know, huge figure, a lot of people felt like, yes, this is the right person. I'm listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with my favorite guest, Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. Uh, really excited about this conversation, Lindsay. And I, and I just love that we're being reasonable, I think, and certainly dispassionate. I have no um, dog in the fight on the party system in this conversation. What I want is America to recover. Um, you know, McCain said in that famous vote where he turned his thumb upside down on the health care bill, we need to return to regular order. And I think we have in many respects, but I don't think that's caught up with the country. And here's my question before we turn to round two. I think Liz Cheney gets her wish. I think that Donald Trump cannot be reelected to the presidency, that he has alienated enough people in the middle. His diehard will stay with him. But I think much of the country has serious Trump fatigue. I think he's he's not handled his post-presidency very well, and that's without Twitter to make it worse. I don't think he's going to be the next president of the United States or ever again. But here's the problem. Whatever was unleashed from Newt Gingrich on to Donald Trump is not going away. The Trumpites are, are ardently hoping that he will recover and go back to the presidency. But I think if he doesn't, they are still filled with all the rage they've been filled with, and maybe more, because they're going to think that the deep state did take him out. Yes or no? He's not going to be the next president. I agree that he's not going to be the next president. I don't totally yet know the reason why. I think there are a lot of different possibilities. I think that he is too damaged in a lot of different ways. And there are clearly people chomping at the bit to take his place that are going to be more than happy to push him under the bus when the time comes. I do worry. I do worry about the forces that he that have always been there. We should absolutely articulate that these forces are not new in American history, but he gave them voice. He gave them a bullhorn. He made them socially acceptable. And Yes, and he made them very electorally powerful. So it used to be that if you, if there was a fringe figure articulating some of the things that he said or a congressperson said, the party would drum them out. The party would say, this is not acceptable. We do not accept your endorsement. We do not accept these ideas. The party is now completely enthralled to those things because they're afraid of losing that electoral support. The constituents, and so, the constituents are if anything, more stirred up than ever. And they so are. Yes, the base even is driving... Donald Trump is hostage to yeah. the Trumpites now. He, he really is. And you can see that in terms of his vaccine position. At times, he's tried to say, you know, this was my great success because he did his administration did do a lot to help the process move along quickly and to get vaccines developed in record, you know, record speed. And the base booed him and he never brought it up again. And so that does worry me. And I do think that that will require sustained losses by some of these more radical figures such that the party has to really seriously undergo transformation. I think that that under different I think if McCarthy had, had not gone to Mar-a-Lago after the after the election, I think if the if 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 Lindsey Graham had said, no, nope, we're done with this guy. I meant it when I said it. I think if, if every one of the major Republican voices who are appalled by January 6th had stayed the course and said, this is just not okay for this country, 
that we might have been done with this conversation sooner, but they didn't, they succumbed. And now eight of the 10 impeachment people in the House of Representatives have been removed one way or another, only two survived. Let's go to round two. I'm President Biden. I'm back. I've, I've, I've listened to Michael Beschloss and, 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 and John Meacham. I'm blah, 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 blah. You know, they always are high-minded, great people. Uh, but I don't really want to hear too much about 1860 right now or 1932. So, Lindsay, you said three things. One was a global stage. The second was civic education, civic engagement. And the third was trust in institutions. Let me just set that up by saying in 1960, people believed in the press high approval ratings. People believed in, in, the major, in the mainline religions. People believed more in Congress. They certainly believed in the presidency. They absolutely believed in the FBI and, and the Justice Department. Uh, they believed in the, in, the, in the Supreme Court. High levels of civic um, faith. Now, some of that, I think, was naive because we've since learned an awful lot that should be factored in. But whatever it was, there was that faith. That's gone. I mean, if you did, if you took at the major institutions of 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 a, of a of a of a civilization, from higher ed to the local police force, there has been such an erosion of basic credibility or basic faith by the people in those institutions that we are in. We're in a civilizational crisis, irrespective of our party system. So, how do you? How do we rebuild trust in the FBI, rebuild trust in the press, rebuild trust in the mainline churches? The Catholic Church has had this royal of sex abuse cases. Now we're seeing it in the Baptists and it's moving around. Uh, what, what's your view as a historian of what happens to a country that takes the, the plug out of the, out of the pool of goodwill on all of these institutions and lets it drain away? So I think the most important thing that we can do for all of these institutions really is the cover-up is almost always worse than the crime. And so, for example, with the church scandals, obviously they're horrible. And in, in this case, the crime is so appalling that 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 metaphor doesn't really hold true. But what has eroded the trust is not necessarily even that there were bad actors, because I think that humans have the ability to have enough complex thinking that they can understand that an institution might still be good even if there are bad actors in it. It's the institution's attempt to protect the bad actors thinking that it will sully their image. That's the mistake. We need to take a short break, but we'll return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour and our conversation this week about presidential historians featuring Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky. I repeat my view that comes out of the world of Jefferson, who had a chance to invest in Western lands, but didn't because he said, I may at some point I'll be adjudicating public policy on Western lands. I think of Theodore Roosevelt, who believed that he said, if you want to be the president of the United States, you have to be holier than Caesar's wife. You can't give any blemish of scandal. You can't hand your enemies a club with which to beat you. And if ever two people handled their enemies a lot of clubs, it's Bill and Hillary Clinton. And I want to say, Anthony Weiner, I don't feel as much sympathy for you as I should. You probably cost uh, the election. Um, you know that that whole episode and the computer that they get they got late in the game, and then Comey felt he had to announce it because if he didn't announce it, the Republicans would crucify him after the election. All right, so. If I'm Biden, I hear you. I don't know how we're going to rebuild public trust because um, Merrick Garland's in a no-win situation. If he doesn't indict um, Donald Trump over, over clear violations of the Espionage Act, then what is justice? Uh, if he does, it only makes the case that the deep state is trying to destroy Donald Trump. I mean, it seems to me he had his hands tied. They tried and tried and tried to get the documents returned. They didn't get them returned. They went to pick them up. Now this is going to become the flashpoint that, that could reelect Donald Trump. It certainly reinvigorated his somewhat dying place in American public life. So let's go to the third, um, civic engagement, civic virtue. Can I just say one other one other element about that? So I think that this is especially a place where the long game is so important because Yes, in the short term, it might boost Trump. But in the long term, if he was able to get away with absolutely zero legal accountability, that would be, I think, fatal to in certain institutions. And so my hope is I actually saw a news report just this morning that he is that Biden is convening a, a new task force with a lot of local officials, state officials national officials in, in institutions like the DOJ and the FBI to look at some of these threats to violence that we've been talking about as a way to sort of build trust in the institution and help them combat these threats. And I'm glad that those conversations are happening because I think part of the problem is these things have been so siloed and they are often allowed to sort of pick at each other. And so if there is a task force, I'm hopeful that that sort of long-term vision of restoring some of these things can be a part of that conversation. It's so interesting to me that uh, the ignorance of the American people, when I was getting ready for the Supreme Court, I was looking up statistics and, you know, you don't have to watch the Tonight Show to know this is true. 30% of one group of respondents thought that Judge Judy was on the Supreme Court. I mean, we're doomed, right? I mean, I mean, there is, people don't know how a bill becomes law. They don't know what uh, the filibuster is. They don't know what cloture is. They don't know what reconciliation is in, in Congress. They don't even know that a bill has to be passed by both houses of Congress. Uh, there is such profound indifference slash ignorance about our civics that it's hard to believe the American people can be called upon to understand what's at stake. And that makes them susceptible to the demagoguery from both sides. What do we do about this? Because I, I'm you know, a generation older than you. When I went to school, it was right at the end of teaching civics in our schools. Now it's essentially gone. 
and the average person graduates from high school or even from college without knowing much about how a republic works or how any democracy works. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. I think there's a significant portion of the American people don't know what the three branches of government are. So I have a lot of ideas in this. And I think a couple, a lot of them are small, but could have a long-term ripple effect. I think that we as a nation need to invest in local news. One of the problems that we have is that people don't know where to get trusted sources. And it used to be that local news was really trusted. Now, of course, local newspapers are not profitable. So I think that there could be something like the National Endowment of the Humanities, but for local newspapers. So why not try and invest in having some local sources with people who are in the community, who can speak to their neighbors, who are faces that people can get to know? So that's idea number one. Idea number two, as part of this, you know, commitment to to education, I think that things like the National Endowment of the Humanities, they're doing incredible work. One of the things that they do is invest in these teacher programs. And I participate in several every summer, including ones that are run by places like the Gilder Lehrman Institute. And they bring teachers that teach from K through eighth grade usually or, or K through 12 for a week or two week intensive seminar on particular subjects. And the teachers get to speak with scholars, they get to, you know, receive lectures, they get to talk about different resources that maybe could be used, they get to work with each other to come up with lesson plans that they want to incorporate. And that sort of time and investment is not possible during the school year because teachers are stretched so thin. But a lot of those conversations end up having something to do with civics. Almost all of my presentations include some element of civics. So if there could be a greater investment in teachers, whether it's just paying teachers better because Lord knows they deserve it, that is a brutal job, or you know, helping facilitate civics education in ways like that, I think that could be really important. And then the last one, and this is kind of a 180, but it speaks especially to your, your concern about our discourse. I think that if we were to reform our primary electoral system and have a system either of open primaries where like the top two or three advance or ranked choice voting in particular, it would make a huge difference because those types of primaries have been shown to encourage candidates to build coalitions, encourage candidates to avoid more partisan rhetoric to avoid attacking one another. It lowers the temperature of campaigns. It promotes more moderate candidates, which are more likely to be the second or third choices of other other candidates. And it would help take away a little bit of this intense party identity, which I think has taken over any other sort of identity that we have. We no longer think of ourselves as Americans or Californians or Virginians. We think of ourselves as blue or red team. And that is deeply corrosive to our society and our ability to have those types of conversations. So those are sort of three of my ideas that I think would be helpful. What are your ideas? Well, first of all, I agree with you. you know, but, but these NEH seminars, and I've done them, I've been, I've been at the trough of the NEH from earliest childhood. Uh, and I won the Frankel Prize. I won one of the first five National Humanities Medals in, uh, under Lynn Cheney. Um, Lynn Cheney presented to me. George H.W. Bush put the put the award in my hand in a White House ceremony, and so I've been I've been a deep devotee of the NEH from the very very beginning. I think it does incredible work. You know, its budget is 120 million. 
an average Hollywood film costs 250 million to make these days. So no, we could make it a billion dollars. We could make it $10 billion and, and we wouldn't miss the money, but it could do incredible things. They spend their money and the NEA does too in ways that really stretch limited dollars to make things happen all over this country. But those seminars, you know, 30 teachers in Missoula, Montana and 50 teachers in Annapolis and 20 teachers in Tampa, you know, this is a society of 300 million. So as you say, we need to greatly expand, expand this. So the teachers get a break and have a chance to meet with eminent scholars and to listen and to learn nuance and to get deeper into subjects that they dearly love and so on. I also think PBS and NPR are one of the greatest bargains the American people have. If you're looking for media that's not tainted, you know, people talk about the media all the time. NPR is what is the fairest media that I know and I'll tell you why, because they're publicly, partly publicly funded. And so they have to listen to the right and they work hard to compromise and to have consensus. It's not like MSNBC and Fox. They work at trying to be fair, thoughtful, more nuanced. The soundbite is twice or three times or four times as long as it is on commercial media. I say we turn them loose, unpopular. But here's here are my solutions. Can I say one more thing before I hear your solutions? Just in response to what you said. The one thing about the teachers is you're right. It, it's a small group of teachers, but they go back and they share that information and their resources with their colleagues. And they also have students every single year. So it is an investment that just explodes exponentially over time. So I, I think that that is one important sort of detail. Okay. What are your ideas? I like the We the People program too, which is another kind of program. And I would I would go, I would just make that universal that every every school has a We the People program. Funding these things in a in a in a government that spends four or five trillion dollars per year is nothing. This is just throwaway change. All right, so here's my plan, Mr. President. Um, this is going to take a constitutional amendment. Uh, it ain't going to be easy one, but we have to do two things. We have to change the Senate. Um, it can't be okay that Wyoming has two senators and California has two senators. I get we both of us know why that's so and that it's deeply embedded in the Constitution, but it isn't okay. So my plan is we'll keep 100, but there'll be five for California, Texas, Florida, four for New York, Illinois, et cetera, three for certain states, Ohio, Kansas, and Oklahoma will get two, North Dakota, Wyoming, Vermont, Montana will get the statutory one. That solves a lot of problems if you do that, because the, the, the corrupt bargain, the bargain that was forced upon us by the southern states and the small states in 1787 is really preventing us from making the legislative advances that the country wants on a whole range of issues. And that's just anti-democratic, it's ridiculous, and it needs to go. Of course, it won't. Secondly- Yeah, I think that's a great idea. If you can make it happen, I'm all for it. Oh, of course. I, I just, I, they, you know, the president so seldom calls me now. Secondly, <laughs> um, the Senate has to get rid of the filibuster and culture. And I know that can cut both ways, believe me. but. It wasn't the Constitution did not intend it to be a super majoritarian institution. It intended to be a majority rules institution, except on certain things like treaties and so and on impeachment. So we need to say that 51 is victory. If, let's just say that that I that, and they could have done this. I don't I'm glad they didn't. But if I if, if the Biden administration had come in and said, we're ending the filibuster um, ending cloture, we're going to we're just going to we're going to ram through. 50 kind of New Deal bills to address everything, voter security, uh, access to polls, health care, 
um, fixing Social Security, uh, comprehensive immigration reform, you name your list. If they had done this and just forced it through and the Republicans would have screamed bloody murder and, and you know had nervous breakdowns over it and wet their pants, two, three, five years from now, the American people might think that was the one of the great things that ever happened to this country because the people want health care. I went in to get a healthcare procedure this week and I was told by my doctor, oh, there's a really good thing, test I could give you that's like instantaneous and it's the best test we have, but Medicare won't pay for it. So I'm going to do this kind of third rate test that takes two weeks instead. And you think, and this is the best healthcare system in the world. We need to get, we need to solve these problems. And the American people want them solved. They want modest, careful gun restrictions. They want a whole range energy. They want a whole range of things done and they don't get done. If we used majority rule alone in the Senate, this administration that controls both houses of Congress and the presidency could have gotten it done by not doing it, by every administration failing to get much done now because of the paralysis creates a yo-yo effect. So we throw these bums out and get the other bums. They don't get anything done either. The Republicans had four years and they couldn't get rid of Affordable Care Act. Why? Because the American people like it, number one. But we have to allow the majority to rule in this country. And I know the founding fathers didn't like democracy that much, but they did like majority rule. And we don't have it in the United States Senate. So, you know, you and I both know that none of this is going to happen, but that could save the country. Well, I think it is possible, depending on how things go this fall, that the filibuster might take a significant hit. I don't want to make any predictions because whatever. But if the Democrats were to pick up a couple more votes, it's possible the filibuster would take a pretty significant hit. And I do. You, and I do. I want to interrupt just to say, did you see Mitch McConnell saying it'd be a lot easier if our candidates weren't so loony? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. As a side note, did you see, have you seen the viral Dr. Oz crudite video and then the unbelievable responses by Fetterman? I mean, it is just someone on Dr. Oz's staff does not like him is the only answer I can come up with. You know, and, and you're right, it would cut both ways. But what that means is that if it was unpopular, if the American people didn't like those measures, then that party would be voted out. And when the next party came in, they would have the opportunity to overturn it. Or if it's popular, they wouldn't do so. And the, the, your your example, yeah, your example is a great one of healthcare. is the Republicans couldn't overturn the ACA because it was popular, even though they really wanted to. And so I think that we do need to bring things back to popular will. I agree with you that it's essential. I agree with you that there would actually be more governing stability if Congress could pass things. But instead, everyone just hates government and thinks it doesn't work because of all these roadblocks that have been put up. And it does work if it's actually allowed to work the way that it was designed. Exactly. In other words, the Founding Fathers designed a system that can work. Yeah. Even with the two senators. Oops. Yeah. You're still there. Even with the two senators per state. But by making, uh, by forcing super majorities on us and the states that hold back reasonable progressive legislation like comprehensive health care access for all Americans, comprehensive immigration reform. The things that hold that back are states like mine, these red, red, red rural states that have low populations. And, you know, the North Dakota is so far from the Mexican border that we don't know the first thing about how to think about this. This is not okay. We need that reform. And the last one I would do in my trifecta of reforms is, is the Lindsey Travinsky plan of the 18-year term for Supreme Court justices. Each president gets two nominations. I love this plan. 
So those three things, I mean, look, they'll save America, it seems to me. And the fact is, you and I both know, we can't get there from here. You think maybe on the filibuster, we can't get there from here because we are so locked in. And one of the problems is the ridiculously reverent conservative attitude Americans have towards the Constitution as if it's the be all and the end all. You know, every founding father, including your man Washington, thought it's okay for now. But nobody thought that this was a permanent um, recipe for American self-governance. Yeah, we got we got complacent. We got we got comfortable thinking that it was always going to last and we didn't have to continue to fight to uphold it. Do you think this is valuable, this conversation? I certainly think so. I mean, I hope so. I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see what listeners think. I find it very thought-provoking to think through these big questions because they're not the type of big questions that one usually tackles in our writing or in our sort of day-to-day work. And they're hard. They're they're supposed to be hard. If they weren't hard questions, then someone else would have already come up with a solution and fixed these problems. But they're big problems and they require a lot of different sets of eyeballs on them and they certainly require discussion. You've brought a wonderful sense of insight and clarity and playfulness to this. Thank you for your good humor. I think every listener to the Jefferson Hour is glad that you're part of our mix. Uh, Let's keep talking. uh, And maybe someone, somewhere, will send our tape to the president and he'll give us a call. And we'll go to the White House, (laughs) steal soap, and tell him what we really think. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson.